Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hey, everybody. I'm Rick Page. I'm a director of photography and director. I uh, am known for things like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And last year, I did uh, HBO's The Sex Lives of College Girls and NBC's current show, Grant Crew. Right now, I'm working on a new show for Netflix called Blockbuster, and I'm really happy to talk with you today. Rick Page, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I really am excited. You have such a deep resume, and I want to give this audience uh, a sense of who you are even more broadly than your wonderful intro. Like I always say, this is the internet, so if you, you find something that I'm reading to be no longer accurate or completely inaccurate, feel free to amend to that or correct me. Rick Page is a director of photography in television and film known for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Sex Lives of College Girls, Grand Crew, and multi-award winner in Uncanned Portrait. Starting 30 years ago as a camera assistant, Rick's extensive career spans television, feature films, commercials, IMAX, music videos, documentaries, and web series. In 2014, Rick co-created the web series Made It Right Here, produced in partnership with Maxwell House Coffee. He shot, directed, and co-produced the 10-part series, that featured American-made products, artisans, and communities across the country, including right down here in Nashville. Can't wait for you to come back. Uh, the series garnered 5.6 million views across AOL.com and YouTube and the broader internet. That number's probably much bigger now. Growing up in Buffalo, New York, Rick started making films in high school and later graduated with a BA in film studies from the University of Utah earning scholarships and awards for his student films. Concurrently, he learned lighting, camera operating, and directing while working at the PBS affiliate KUED in Salt Lake City. Rick, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out <laughs> how do I get into this conversation? Where's a great starting <laughs> point? Where's a place to jump off? And spending the last week in the world of Rick Page... I came to realize that you are a humble servant of the creative, that you're somebody who loves to give back, and it's really important for you to share what you've learned throughout your career and, and, and give it to people who would love to do this or just getting into it or want to get into it. And so I thought I would start by asking you who George Griner is and what he means to you. Oh, my God. George Griner is like you could have picked one of the most near and dear friends to my, to my heart. Uh, George is a director of photography, long, uh, retired. Uh, in fact, he just celebrated his 74th birthday yesterday and we had a lovely conversation. George, um, and I met when I was a loader, I was brand new into the business and, um, he had come in on a, on an extra camera. We were working on this um, pilot in Salt Lake city 
And I, I took to George right away because he was just so darn kind. He was, he didn't come in with any sort of pretension, any ego. And I, I'll never forget this. You know, he was asking one of the operators, like, how's biz, how's the biz? And I thought, Oh, that, that must be how people talk in Hollywood. How's the biz? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and we didn't, you know, as a loader, I was on the, the sort of the bottom of the, the ladder of the camera department on that film on that project. And, um, so I didn't work that closely with George other than grabbing, you know, a battery for his camera and helping the the second give, uh, you know, hand a mag off to the first with, with fresh film and taking the exposed film and that sort of thing. But I remember George being just so, so kind and so nice. And not long after that, we ran into each other again on another project. And, um, and then we found ourselves early in my career, this is around 96. I was on a TV show called promised land and George and I were paired up on the B camera. I was the key second on that show and had been um, bumping up to B camera first when we would have B camera and George would come in and God, George taught me everything back in those days. He, he really was sort of the founding father of my career when it comes to cinematography, because he taught me focus pulling. He taught me composition. He taught me light. He taught me color correction. He taught me everything. Um, we would spend hours and hours on the truck um, waiting for a two camera shot. And that whole time was education. It was like college on the set. And, um, and then when we were on set, you know, he would train me. He worked really hard to get the best shot that he could get and service the show and the director of photography. But all the while he was training me and helping boost my confidence and, and help me to learn from my mistakes. And we spent years together in that capacity as, as operator and first And then we did some independent projects together where I was stepping up and directing and he was shooting for me. And so we were collaborating, um, as partners and, uh, you know, over time, uh, we just became really close friends and, and know each other's families very well. And I feel like I owe everything to him. He gave me his, one of his very first spectrum meters, um, that I have on my, on my shelf in my, in my office at home. And, um, he also gave me, which still works. And I bring it with me to every single set sort of as my good luck charm is his color meter. Um, because I just, you know, we don't really use color meters too often anymore with digital uh, right. cinematography, but I just love having it with me, you know, cause a little <laughs> bit of George is with me. So George, George is, uh, he's the bee's knees. I, I got really, really lucky, you know, um, meeting him and becoming friends and, and training under him. He's, he's a special person. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. There's something about someone who really knows you or who gets to really know you and they, they just get it. Yeah. I got a, I'm a musician. I've been playing piano for a long time and I have a friend that just gave me a belated Christmas gift and it was an old Yamaha metronome. Like, oh. the, like the kind that just swings back and forth and ticks. Yeah. And then you can change it to three, four or six, eight, and then it can ding different ways. And, am, you know, is it something that you need in a digital world when you have a, a doll system, you know, digital, you know, works, yeah. workspace? No, no, you don't need it. But I sit it right on, right out there on my piano. I look at it and it's such That's a right. personal gift. And he had a little note that went with it and said, for for the uh for the person who keeps us all uh on beat 
It's so great. I mean, having those nostalgic items to me is such a, a wonderful celebration of, of, of history mm-hmm. of knowing where things started. And, and to me, it serves as a tremendous sense of, you know, inspiration and, and helps me be creative. When my father passed in 05, my brother and I were going through all of his things and we found two of his old 35 millimeter cameras with lenses intact. And in fact, I think there was film in there. Um, wow. And my brother immediately was like, Oh, Rick, you got to have these. And I was like, you sure you don't want to split them up? And he's like, you got This is dad loved photography. You're a cinematographer. You need to have these. And they sit proudly on my shelf. You know, I just, it's great to sort of collect these things over the years and know where we've come and, and know that you're adding to that history. You know, I often get made, um, not made fun of, you know, people at work, uh, have a, have a good time with the fact that I am always the sort of the history buff of the, of the studio <laughs> a lot, wherever we're shooting. Right. And I'm like, do you realize when you walk through this gate that this is where John Wayne was and Harry Grant walked over there and Jimmy Stewart and, and Catherine Hepburn was right here under these rafters, you know, can you believe it? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? You know? And I love that. <laughs> Because it's so exciting to think we're stepping into hallowed ground. You know, it's like, does your dentist go to the, go to their building and go, God, I really love working in this building. This is just such a neat place. Like, you know, (laughs) it's, it's something, it's something that I love. I love the idea that we're, that we're being able to create history. That's one of the reasons why I love like this current show that I just wrapped on grand crew. Um, the, the creator, Phil Augusta Jackson, you know, he, he, I feel is, is really, come on to something very strong and very fresh and contemporary. Um, and I feel like we're making history, you know, we're getting to, to all come together and collaborate and make new history that, and we happen to shoot that shot, uh, shoot that show down at uh, Paramount and which is already rich with all kinds of history, but now we're making new history, you know, and I, and I really appreciate that. It, it just helps me, it helps me stay humble you know it helps me stay grounded and and grateful for the for the profession that i get to enjoy working in so much you know when you when you learn to appreciate all facets of the industry yeah we're we're kindred spirits in that way i've been a fan of history since even before college and i'd be that guy that said the history in a group of friends in my 20s and be a little embarrassed about it and worried am i getting on anyone's nerves with this and now that I'm older, I'm like, I don't care. I'm not changing. Like, this is who that's I right. am. Be you. Yeah, I like it too just much. I'm just going to do it. And, you know, that's just that's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, the thing about keeping yourself, you know, humbled is so important because, and I've told this story before for people who've listened to the Make It podcast, but uh, this is a business where you're compared so often and you need attention. Attention is is a driver of revenues. So you can get down, you know, anxiety can get you sometimes. And anytime that happens, I, you know, I call my dad who, um, my mom passed in 07, but I'm, I'm so glad to have my dad still around. And mm-hmm. I just tell him how I'm feeling. And he said, Chris, remember you're one person of 8 billion on a single rock hurling around the sun in one universe of over a million. Crazy. And for some reason, it just completely calms me down when he says it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just, yeah. I can, my ego is flattened at that moment and I just keep moving forward. Um, you, you talked about your dad 
dabbling in still photography. What was his influence on, on you? Uh, is this a coincidence that you became a cinematographer or is this really influenced by your dad? Not well, I think he was part of it. I think that, you know, for me, it started very young. Um, first off, you know, I always credit, um, the Christopher Reeves version of Superman, 1978, Christopher Reeves, real story. Sorry. Uh, For real? I really am. My mom thought he was sexy and he used to be in soaps in the seventies. I love it. Well, I'm 1978. I'm, you know, I'm six years old and, uh, and you know, uh, my, my folks were divorced. I was very young and my dad would go to my dad's on the weekend and he took us to see this movie. My brother was, was, you know, he would have been three at the time. So I, I doubt he remembers this, but I remember seeing that film plain as day. I can to this day, remember sitting in the, in the palace theater in Lockport, New York, watching this movie. And I remember saying to him, how are they making this happen? How, how is he flying? He said, what do you mean? He's Superman. I said, no, I know, but, <laughs> but how is he flying? He says, well, it's his cape. It's his red cape. I said, no, but how is he flying? He said, well, I think the sun gives him the power. I said, no, how is he? Like I had the wherewithal at six years old to understand this was a magic trick. And I wanted to know who was responsible for it. How were they making this happen? I immediately was impressed by, by the magic of film, I think back then. And then in grade school, um, my brother and two friends of ours, we were big into comic books. And so we would, we would, um, come up with our own, we would draw our own comic books. We'd come up with our own superheroes and we would come up with stories. We would ditto them. This was long before Xerox, you know, the old ditto machines with the blue ink (laughs) dating myself. And we would sell them for a quarter, you know, at school. And, and I think that that was sort of my early influence as visual, as a visual storyteller. Couple that with my dad, you know, again, on the weekends, he, he loved photography. He loved learning. He was self-taught. And he would figure out, how do I shoot stars? How do I get a bird in motion? How do I shoot, you know, wonderful scenery? And how do I do things? You know, his big thing was always getting me and my brother to point at something. But he loved, like, nature photography. That was his thing. And, um, and I don't remember as a child being particularly impressed with photography. I don't remember immediately going, oh, yeah, I got to learn how to, how to, you know, do this. But there were little hints here and there, like in, in also in sixth grade, we had a photography class where we actually had to make a book and, and in doing so we had to shoot the film, develop it, process it in the bath, you know, print the pictures, assemble them in a book. And I think, you know, there were always these little things that were reaching out to me, tugging me along the way saying, mm-hmm. this is where you're going. This is what you need to do. And, um, so, you know, my dad was certainly there and, and, and as a consequence, when I did get into the film business and I was, and I was heavily into camera, he was, he was like my biggest cheerleader, you know, next to my wife, he was always the one, you know, in the corner championing me the the whole way, you know? And I, I think, I think there was probably a part of him that was really proud that it was the camera that I gravitated to, you know, I think was your so. mom equally supportive. She was an artist in her own, in her own right. I mean, she was more into things like fabrics and, uh-huh. and, um, and, um, like she was really good at sewing and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I feel like my brother and I, you know, we, we definitely got artistic genes, you know, um, you know, handed down to us. My brother went into acting for a while. Um, 
And, uh, you know, that he sort of gravitated towards in front of the camera, you know, uh, and, and on stage during college and just after college. And then he, then he went into pharmaceuticals and decided to make a real living. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look for anybody that's an artist that goes out and has to make a quote unquote real living. They have to admit that the only reason they're doing that is so they have enough money to go back into art. Well, that was it. I mean, he, he, I know he'd love to act any day of the week, you know, he, he just, uh, yeah, he's, he's still, he's a big fan too. You know, he will, he, he will often, you know, love to, what are you working on now? You know, how is so-and-so tell me about, you know, Andre Brower, what's he like, you know, I want to come see the set. Like he still wants to get involved. (laughs) I'm rooting for him already. I've I've known so many guys like your brother and you know, it's just up to you. You just got to take the first step. That's right. Take the first That's step. That's right. I was surprised to find out, you know, that you went to University of Utah because I don't think anyone out of the hundred plus interviews we've done has gone there for film. <laughs> yeah, so why, it's not why, in the- why Utah from New York, upstate New York? Yeah, it's that. not. It, yeah, it's not like you know NYU, UCLA, USC, Utah. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not part of the conversation. Well, my wife loves this conversation because you know. So I went to high school. I actually, my brother and I moved to Maryland. Um, He was at the beginning of high school. I was mid high school. So I actually lived in outside of Baltimore for three and a half years. And that's where I, that's where I caught the bud, the bug for filmmaking. Um, I was in high school and um, I was running track and my buddies and I um, were, were all good pals. And a couple of them were in an AP English class and they wanted to do this little film project. And they said, Hey, you know how to run a VHS camcorder, don't you? And I said, yeah, I think so. Uh, I can figure it out anyway. And they said, well, there's one at the media library. Let's check it out. You be the cameraman. And I was like, great. And so we shot this little tongue in cheek cop thing. And, um, then they were like, well, how are we going to edit this together? And none of us had a clue, but see back in those days, one would, if one wanted a copy of a movie, one would get two VCRs rent a movie from say a blockbuster, mm-hmm. put it in a play deck, hit record on the other deck and you'd have a copy of a movie. It mm-hmm. wasn't legal, but that's what we did. Just like, cassettes. so I thought to my, just like I said, so I thought to myself, all right, well, what's to keep a guy from hitting record pause, fast forward on the tape to another shot, unpause, record a little bit, oh, pause it again, Rick. boom, editing. And it was great. And I thought that I had reinvented cheese. You know, it was like, this is amazing. And so we put together this little thing. I think it was 20 minutes or a half hour, showed it to class. And I remember at the time, you know, we sort of had this little rival with the preppy, you know, there were, there were, there were these rich kids who drove BMWs to work. None of us, we all walked, (laughs) walked, we all walked to school. These guys all drove to school. You know, they had BMWs and rich parents and they played lacrosse and um, (laughs) they, they loved it. We brought, we brought the, we brought the classroom down in tears and laughter. And I remember at that moment, I was like, that's it. This is all I have to do. This is, I have got to make films. This is everything to me. So cut to, um, all my buddies, we graduate high school. They all go off. And one of them went on a track scholarship. A bunch of them were really smart. They, they were going off to these Ivy league schools and I was stuck in Maryland and I was going to the university of Maryland whose film program was quickly fizzling out. And I thought, I got to get out of here. I, I need to do something. And I couldn't afford to go to NYU, nor did I have the SAT scores to do so. But I had a really high GPA. I couldn't get it into UCLA or USC. 
And at that time, we're talking, you know, 1990. So, you know, you, there wasn't as many resources available. You know, you didn't have to go to film school to get into the business. But mm-hmm. to me, that was, I wanted to go to college. And so um, I was dating a girl who was still in high school who was looking at the University of Utah for dance school. And lo and behold, that ended up being like, I was looking at the brochures. I was like, well, this is a really pretty place to to, to live. I mean, it looks great. It's close to LA. Looks like they have a good film program. BYU, which was down the road, even though their films were mostly geared towards the the church, the, the Mormon church, you know, they had a, a pretty popular film program there with lots of gear and everything. And I found out that Salt Lake city was a filming town. There was a lot of film <laughs> production going on there. So it just made sense. I got into school and very quickly, um, got a scholarship because I showed the films that I'd made in high school and I was taking initiative in the dorms and I was making little promo videos for the dorms. And that was getting me scholarships in the film department. And then I was working at the PBS station and, um, it ended up being a real, a real stroke of, of luck and genius on, on the part of, um, finding it, you know, because it, it really worked out to my advantage. And, and then I got into the business there. That's really kind of where I started working as a camera assistant before moving to Los Angeles. So yeah. it, Utah and Colorado and that whole area have uh, a handful of really prestigious festivals and, they do. That was yeah, at the so. beginning. When I was there, it was sort of the beginning of Sundance and, and um, now it's just completely huge, you know, right. it's blown up, but, but yeah, I mean, back in those days, it seems like, like that was before um, Albuquerque and Santa Fe and it was before Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, Wilmington was, was, a, was a big filming hub, Chicago, of course, Salt Lake city, LA, New York, like those were the places to be. And, and Salt Lake city, at that time before state tax incentives, it was a right to work state. Oh. And, uh, you, you, so productions were coming up all the time, mostly from Los Angeles and they were either union or non-union, but they were so close to LA and in Salt Lake is terrific place to, to film a project. Cause you've got city, you've got mountains, you've got desert and mm-hmm. it's all very close. And at the, and during those days in the nineties, I don't know how it is now. I haven't been there in so long, but there were a lot, you know, there were a lot of very talented crew members there, you know, so it, it was a booming town. And so it worked out really well for me. You know, I, I found myself really, really happy with my choice of college and, and I enjoyed going there and that's where I met my wife. So can't complain about that (laughs) whatsoever. Uh, Yeah. Can you be a great cinematographer without also being a great lighting expert? Yes. And here's why, um, you know, you know, and I know that, that, uh, that a lot of people in independent filmmaking get caught up in this and and thinking, you know, that, that they need to sort of be experts in whatever role they have. The trick to everything is having a strong team. I can't do anything of what I do without my team, you Mm -hmm. know, and my team changes from time to time right now. Um, I'm in Vancouver, I'm getting ready to do this show. And so I've had to hire a completely new team. I, because of the restrictions of, 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 um, U S versus Canada, you know, I have to hire locals up here. And, and so I've interviewed and I've assembled a really great team. You know, you go through it very carefully. Um, my team in LA is terrific. You know, um, I've got, I've got an excellent gaffer. I've got an excellent key grip. I've got an excellent key focus puller, excellent camera operators, you know, people who I really vibe with people who I collaborate with. And I really can't do what I do without them because, your team 
is, is, is our, you know, is vital to you being able to do what you do. I will say to my gaffer, you know, there are times when I've gotten into a scene and I'll go, you know, I don't really know how we're going to light this. I'll look around, I'll see what the parameters are. I know we can't rig any lights up here and there, and we're facing the wrong direction for the sun outside. And I want this to look like, you know, eight o'clock Sunday morning, you know, over coffee. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what I'll say to them. I'll say, look, make this look like eight o'clock Sunday morning coffee. And (laughs) then they know what to do. They know which, which lights to come in, which diffusion, which color, and then we'll all work together. And I'll say, okay, yeah, it's like, it's like making sauce or painting a picture. It's like, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Okay. Now take this out, lose that, turn that off. Okay. Yeah. Now bounce this in here. Perfect. Beautiful. Walk away. This is, this is what we need to do. And it's this collaboration. So I think that, you know, um, I mean, even the great ones, like, I mean, Roger Deakins is the greatest. I think oh, all DPs will you that, know, agree that, that he that is, he's, the, he's the top end. That shot, Rick, <laughs> yeah. in 1917, where the protag is running down, because he's got to deliver a message, and he's running down the battlefield, and then the, and then he jumps into a trench. It's incredible. And then the fact that <clears throat> he didn't do that with, well, at least he said he didn't do that with any robotic arms. Right. It was all right. shot. And I guess what they did is they they put them on a track and they rolled the track and then had the actor run behind the camera. I, and then the track went into the trench. I don't know. It, it, like it's, it's bananas. He, 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 it is bananas. He is the absolute master. And we all aspire to, to do great work like Roger. I mean, he, he I met, I got, had the fortune of meeting him at the ASC awards and, and I have a picture of him printed and it's on the wall in my office. Cause it's such a, it was such an inspirational moment meeting him. Um, but I think I don't know this, so I'm not quoting him, but I would guess that even he would, he would agree that, you know, you're, you're as good as your team. You know, you surround yourself with experts who, you know, they may not be a hundred percent perfect at what they do, but they're going to work to make you better. And they're going to work to make the show better. You know, Larry Pierce is an old tell long since retired. I don't even know if Larry's still around, uh, rest his soul. If he, if he, uh, isn't, but Larry would direct, he directed the old Batman and Robin series, Green mm-hmm. Hornet. I worked with him in the early days of Touched by an Angel. And um, he would say things like, oh, you never tell the, you do, don't tell the dolly grip how to lay the track. You don't tell the prop person how to make the prop. You don't tell the boom man how to hold the, hold the boom. You let these people do their jobs. You know, you're the director, you're, de- you're dealing with the actors, you're dealing with the writers, you know, and, you know, it's right you got to listen and you got to let people do their best work. And if you surround yourself with a, with a strong team, um, they're going to do that. And not everyone in the, in the chain is good. You know, there's going to be a weak link here and there, but then you help that person, you know, you don't sabotage that person. If you end up bagging on that person, who's the weak link in the chain, you're in trouble, you know, because then all the other parts are going to start falling apart. You all have to work together and like, okay, look, we got a weak area over here. Let's all work together to lift this person up. What can we do to help them? Yeah, You know, because you can always learn, you know, no one's ever an expert. You're never an expert, you know, except maybe if you're Roger Deakins. (laughs) In the spirit of that, in the spirit of learning with so many up and coming filmmakers and DPs listening to this conversation, what would be your setup for a perfect bar scene 
<laughs> from, a, from a lighting, from a lighting and sort of feel situation. And the reason I ask that is because a lot of industries have continuing education classes you can take. In yeah. film, to me, as an EP and as a producer, my continuing ed is I'll I'll get on my knees and beg directors and producers to let me just sit on set as a fly on the mm-hmm. wall. And I'll go in and I'll watch how the editor's doing his dailies and I'll watch what the director's doing. And I'll see how the script is working. I'll just try to write notes on everything I'm seeing. But the telltale thing for me, especially if there's a bar scene in the film, is I love to see how they light a bar and how they set that scene up and see if it rings true to me. Like, okay, I've been in a thousand bars. Does any bar I've ever walked into look like that? Uh, right, when I, when right. I look through the viewfinder and sometimes the answer is no i've never seen a bar you know that looks like that that's lit like that um so why did why why did the dp light it that way and so i was just i was curious what your thought is on what what your perfect sort of if you had to say visualize it or speak it out from your mind what would it look like this is a, such a great question and such a great setup because i've experienced this in so many different ways, you know, independent and then network television, you know, I, and I'm now in the midst of, of helping, you know, plan and design, uh, another bar on another TV show, which is totally different <laughs> from the last two bars on the last two shows that I did, you know, Brooklyn nine, nine had Shaw's bar. And, um, it was a big bar with lots of neon, lots of colored Christmas lights. And it was very colorful. And we had lots of like, um, par, you know, 38s, you know, that were highlighting the perimeter and jukebox and, you know, can lights. And it was, it was, it always felt very cozy and homey, but it was never hazy or smoky or anything like that. You know, Mikey, I, I was laughing when you were asking this, cause one time we had, we had, we had it, that bar was always pre-lit, but then we would always tweak it based on what the, how the director staged the actors. And, and so then we would light what the blocking would be. And, one time my key grips it. I mean, this looks like Bennigan's. Is it supposed to look like Bennigan's? <laughs> no, we went too far. Turn off half the lights. <laughs> we don't want Bennigan's, you know, um, you know, and then grand crew is entirely different. And I'll get into that. Here's the thing. We've already talked about having your strong team. The second thing that I always say to people, I say this to directors. I say this to, to new filmmakers is what is the movie that you see in your head? let's start there. And I always liken that back to my comic books that I made when I was in sixth grade. Mm. What, what am I seeing when I'm playing it, when I'm reading the script, you know, when am I seeing a close up? When am I seeing a wide shot? Am I seeing a move? Is there, is there something, is there a steady cam? Is there a crane? Like what is there? Is it just static? Is it dead on symmetrical? You know, am I coming up off of a bar glass, the drink in, in, into the character as they're taking the drink? Is that getting me into the scene? Is it a waiter bringing a tray by with drinks and setting it down? What am I seeing in my head? I start there. And I also ask the director, what do you, what do you see? Um, and so what I would say to a new filmmaker is they're lighting a bar. Like, how, how do you see this? Is it something like, I just watched this great film that George Clooney did called The Tender Bar. Oh, yeah, it's and, on my list um, of movies to watch. It's fantastic. I loved it. They nailed it. And, um, and their set, their bar was a set, but it's got such a great vibe for the seventies. It just looks and feels like a bar in the seventies. And a lot of it comes down to production design. Mm-hmm. You know, you can walk into a bar, whether it's a practical bar on location or a set. And depending on how it's decorated will help inform me as a cinematographer, how I'm going to light it. 
So for example, on Grand Cru, the vibe of the bar is supposed to be, you know, hip and cool and not very bright. You know, we don't need it to be, you know, like a Bennigan's per se, you know, it's, 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 and, and the real bar that's in Los Angeles is a lot darker than how I lighted up the show. My bar is on the set when they did the pilot, it was a different mm-hmm. cinematographer for the pilot and, and, um, they shot it on location and it's a much darker bar. They also didn't have the resources to hang lights from a grid like I do on in a studio. Um, so the, the production designer put a lot of cool, like artwork on the walls and distressed brick and you know glasses behind the bar and so i will look at that and i'll go okay cool so he's got real dark tones here with furniture i think our tabletops are are black and our chairs are black the floor is like a dark concrete the brick is distressed and dark and he's got these cool pieces of art so i then look at that and go okay i see some lavender i see some Mm. some magenta okay, I see some sodium vapor coming in from the street lamp. And then I'll talk to the gaffer and say, okay, what can we do to motivate this? Let's put something where every time it's nighttime, this jazz poster that's already got some deep purples and reds in it inherently, let's, let's help that out. Let's augment it with some, with a little tweeny and put some, you know, put some, you know, let's try some half, you know, CTB or let's put some lavender party gel in there. Let's, let's really make that pop, mm-hmm. you know? And so I will, I will take my lead from the production design. Um, on Grand Crew, we have hanging pendants. So does your bar have pendants? Maybe the source of everything comes from there. Right. Um, on Brooklyn, we didn't have pendants. They were just can lights up above the bar where they sat. So everything from Brooklyn came from like the rest, when they were sitting at the bar, the motivated light source came from like the, the, the bar behind them or from the shelves in front of them, but it never was like hanging lights above them. Whereas on grand crew, it's above them. So you feel that right. When you, when you, when you are, are staging your actors, you want to, you want to make it feel motivated, add to it what you need to add to it without it looking lit. That's the, that's the trick. That's the key on any show is trying to make it look natural. And so, um, that's sort of where I start. That's that's what I do. Now, when you're an independent filmmaker, you don't have all these resources that I'm talking about in network television. You just simply don't have that budget. Right. So what do you have that can work? Okay. Well, we're shooting on a bar on location. It's got a lot of neons. Okay, cool. Great. Oh, but they're flickering in camera. Okay. But mm. can you change your shutter angle? Maybe if you tweak the shutter angle in your camera, you can get rid of those flickers because you don't have flicker free ballast. Okay, great. That solves that. Okay. Terrific. Hey, it's the color temperature in this camera makes this light look really a putrid putrid green but it actually looks feels good for the story great embrace that lean into it okay what else can you do you know can you put do you have anything in your in your disposal like a long led you know bar strip that you can put that helps you know bring some uplighting from behind the bar maybe on the bartender or if you've got can lights can you diffuse them and and make that softer you know use your resources to the best of your uh, to the best of your ability and that will inform a look that you know, on your best day, you know, it could have taken you months to come up with, you know, yeah. haze is always good. It helps lessen the contrast on this bar that I'm doing now. We're going to use haze. Um, because the one that we're doing on this show is in a strip mall in, yeah. in the story, it's in a strip mall. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it's an older bar and it doesn't have a lot of, you know, money into it. So it's going to have old crackled, you know, the bar itself is going to have like the, 
like the bumper on it is like yeah. foam leather. So it's going to be distressed and ripped and torn and cracked and, you know, dark tones on the bar and yeah. a couple of neons that maybe don't work and flicker. And, you know, so it's going to, and then we're going to use haze and it's going to look great. You know, it's going to look like what it should look like. So embrace the story, look and see what's inside your head and then use your resources to try and help create that look. You don't want to overlay the biggest mistake. I see all filmmakers um, uh, and, and we've all been there. Uh, my, uh, I include myself in this, all new cinematographers go into it and, and you end up over lighting because you think you have to light everything. Yeah. The trick is less is more. It really is, you know, less is more. And also you don't, <laughs> you want you don't want to be too dialed in. You want to give the director, um, and the actors, the freedom, um, to change the blocking and adjust if they need to, and be flexible that way. If you're too dialed in with the lighting, now no one can move and everyone's just static and, and that ends up being troublesome. And, and when I've directed, I, I kind of, I go that, I play that role, you know, and put that hat on and tell the DP the same thing. Like, give me something uh, that's a broad sense in here so that I'm not too tied in. Yeah. And it also gives your editor more to play with. hundred um, percent, you know, versus having something that's really skinny, like, Oh, I only got, you know, one or two takes of, or three takes of the, of the same kind of shot kind of thing. I love a I love haze in a two shot in a bar, by the way, where it's just two people talking. There's just that and, brings and some long romance lens. to it. Yeah. Long lens. You know, we do a lot of that on Grand Crew. That that became the look in uh, in, in that show um, was really getting far back with our lenses. I, and I used to shoot three cameras on that show. Mm-hmm. So two cameras would be the coverage and one would be sort of a master. And I would always try to get way back as far as I could. And and it breaks I mean, it. It really centers focus on the actors. It, it, it gives everything else a really nice soft quality, a, a rom-com kind of feel, which is what we were going for with Grant crew. Mm-hmm. And that haze really helps, you know, and the twinkle lights and those things that really pops before you know it, you've got a lot of different looks going on in a bar that you didn't, you didn't see with your own eyes because yeah. you weren't looking at it through a long lens. Well, it, it's such great advice and really appreciate you sharing that. And um, even the piece about production design, it's, sometimes the marker between, you know, an indie film that doesn't quite hit the mark and an indie film that's really mm-hmm. great. And you can see promises just can, can, can the audience suspend disbelief based on what they're seeing before any dialogue happens? Like, do I even believe I'm here uh, because yeah. your production design didn't, didn't meet the level of suspension of disbelief? A hundred percent. And, and so that's key, you know, you want to, you want to make sure that that collaboration, whether you're directing or producing, you know, uh, an independent film or short, you know, don't, don't cut the corners on the production design, you know, as much as you can, you know, and, and those people are worth their weight in gold. I work with one in Cleveland, you know, I've directed a couple of film, a couple of shorts out there now. And, um, there's a production designer there and she's just absolutely amazing because she has, like a shoestring budget on these projects that we have, but man, does she stretch those dollars? You know, Mm -hmm. she's got incredible resources and and, an impeccable taste and she knows exactly what, you know, to bring to the table to help augment the story and not everything makes it onto the set or into the, into the film. But, but most of it does because, you know, she's, she's resourceful and in, and in independent filmmaking, you really need to be resourceful. You don't have the budget like what we would have on a network show. Half the time on a network show, we don't have what we need, you know, <laughs> to really you know, run the gamut on things, you know. Right. And so you you just have you just have to be resourceful, you we know, a, and use what you have. Absolutely, we have a 
production designer down here that's like that. Uh, her name is Cicely Hoffman. So if you're ever in Nashville shooting a short or a film or anything, and you need somebody who knows how to be that creative person who can create three outfits that look unique. I've seen her do this where she's created like three or four different outfits uh, from one outfit or when she was our production designer on our, our feature film, another version of you, we shot everything in the same apartment. Cause we had, we had to, but she made mm-hmm. that apartment right. look like four different places. And I've never heard anybody that watched that say, Oh, it's the same place. No, they that's all right. Thought it was a it, unique place. And to your point, you know, you're suspending, I mean, we're storytellers. So mm-hmm. you're suspending the audience's, you know, disbelief into thinking, okay, yeah, I'm here. I'm there. You know, this is not some set or this isn't, Oh, they didn't have any money. I mean, if it, and that's the key, if it detracts, it's a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, take the note. If somebody comes up to you at the monitor and go, you know, that, that looks weird. Like, what is that thing? Like, well, that's a really cool like prop that we want to have because it was somebody's, you know, somebody's dad gave him his camera and he wanted to put it in the background. Yeah. Well, it's distracting. Well then get it out of there. You know, take, take the note. If the light is too bright, if the, if the flare isn't good, you know, because you just don't ever want to distract your audience. You want to tell the story and have the focus to be on the story and not on something in the frame that isn't working. Beautiful. Uh, You did mention Brooklyn nine, nine. It's kind of an elephant in the room. We have to talk about it, right? And uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a big show, and and you're doing big things on it, and it's back, and it got canceled. Well, no, it, yeah, right. Go ahead. And God, that's got to be so uh, devastating, right? I, I think about that happening to Family Guy. I thought about that happening to Ray Donovan recently. Uh, what? Uh, what are executives getting wrong when they cancel a show that has a rabid fan base and it becomes obvious that it has a rabid fan base after the cancellation? What I've always told people is, you know, there's two words to the term film business, film and business, <laughs> you know, and, um, and what we often like to say on set is, you know, well, we're, 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 we're pleasing the people up in the ivory tower. You know, there are executives that sit in big rooms and make millions of dollars in decisions every single day. And it's based on algorithms. It's based on demographics. It's based on so many things that I don't even care to know what they are because I would rather just, you know, be the guy behind the camera. (laughs) Um, I think that, you, you, you know, you do see that happen. You know, men of a certain age was an amazing show. They got canned, I think after two Mm. seasons. Um, you know, uh, there, there are lots of shows that they get canceled and you go, what, why, you know, why not give it another chance? And you just never know. It, it could have been, it could have been personality conflict. It could have been just uh, the network wants to go in another direction. In our case with Brooklyn, I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't privy to the decisions that Fox made to drop it. Um, I just, I just know how it felt being one of the guys on the inside and it was devastating. You know, it was, it was how could they end us after five seasons without even this was, this was a, a great little show with a, with a great little cast of characters and, and great story arcs. And now we don't even get to end it. Yeah. It seems like more and more now in the in t- television keeps changing every decade. Um, and there's, there are, there are great documentaries about this, um, you know, and in today's world, 
a lot of the models allow a start and a finish because a lot of shows don't go more than, you know, some will go one series, you know, Gervais did afterlife. He did three series of it, but usually he does two series to every one of his shows. And so mm-hmm. it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And it is told in a, in a proper, you know, narrative format, which all writers and storytellers want to do. Nobody wants to have a show yanked out from under him like that. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were devastated when it happened and um, everyone calling one another, but also, not just because we couldn't finish the show for the fans, but because we didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to one another here. We had all gotten to know one another. You're talking about 29 departments and 170 people, you know, over five years, nine months out of the year. That's a long time to spend with people. I mean, that's more time than I had spent in college, you know, and, and now all of a sudden that's gone. You're going, what, what happened? Who made the wrong decision and why? Well, I think what the fan base did for us is that, you know, we had that huge outpouring on Twitter and Mm -hmm. social media. We didn't even realize we had that many fans. I mean, we knew that we were in over, (laughs) we knew we were in over, we were in over 200 countries throughout the world, but Mm -hmm. so we knew we had a reach, but we didn't know it was that big. And it, it, it blew us away. You know, I was texting, you know, with cast members and crew members during that whole 36 hour period. Mm -hmm. And we were blown away. And, and a lot of those fans were, were DMing us, you know, what do we do? What about this? What about that? And, uh, and I didn't know there were only a few people who knew that any of the thing was even remotely possible with NBC, but the majority of us didn't know that. And, uh, I was like, all I could say to people is just keep doing what you're doing. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, keep letting the world know that you love the show so much. And we were just so lucky. I had actually shut my phone off. I had had it. I, once we found out that Hulu had passed, I was like, that's it. I'd shut down my computer. <laughs> I turned off my phone. I, I turned to my wife and said, that's it. We're done. We got to find another show. And the next morning, Joel McKinnon Miller, who is a dear friend of mine who played Scully, he's calling my wife's phone. And she says, why is Joel calling my phone? I said, oh, no. I think I worried him because I texted him last night and said, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> and I think I sent the wrong message because <laughs> yeah. I turned off my phone. <laughs> so I called him and he goes, we got picked up. Turn on your phone. We got picked up by NBC. It was such a great celebration, you know, and they allowed us to end it properly. You know, the way the showrunners, you know, wanted to end it. I mean, and they right. called the ball on that and they said, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to take it through season eight. This is how we're going to end the story. And, um, and it was great. I think that's very satisfying. And, and I think that that, you know, I don't know. You sort of owe that. I feel like you owe that to the audience. If the audience is, if you're depending on the audience to watch your show in the first place, to boost your ratings and your social media, keep you on the air, then I feel like you owe them as the storyteller to finish it properly. Yeah. We saw that with Ray Donovan. They ended up sort of meeting somewhere in the middle and just doing a feature film instead of an additional season. And, you know, a lot of people were like, well, wouldn't a film cost more money than a 10 episode season on HBO? No, it wouldn't. Uh, and, uh, (laughs) those are, those are, you know, probably a million to 10, an episode on, on Ray Donovan, but Ray Donovan. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the audience was satisfied to your point, Rick. And this is where the power of Twitter is good. I'm often afraid of the power of Twitter, maybe uh, somewhere in the background of my mind, especially like I've saw recently where Jimmy Kimmel made, the kind of joke a stand-up comedian makes. Definitely not racist. Definitely right. not 
it was just a joke in my mind. But those K-pop fans are insane. I mean, they went after <laughs> him for, and there, the scary thing is that maybe every 15th comment was, let's get him off the air. Let's do whatever we can to make sure he loses his show. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's where, ooh, that's where we take it too far. Because on one hand, we can be fans and say, let's make sure this yeah. gets back on the air. And then, but, right. but, but if you accept that, then you also have to accept its polar opposite, which is let's do whatever we can to make sure Rick Page never works again. Kind of thing. It's like, whoa, whoa. No, don't I have say a, that. <laughs> I have a wife, I have a family, I have, I have responsibilities. Come on guys. Yeah. What do I need to do? Yeah. And it can be a little intense. Make sure that that's not the soundbite promoting the podcast. It won't, it won't. <laughs> let's make sure Rick Page never works again. Let's do a new soundbite. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's make sure Rick Page gets every job <laughs> that needs a cinematographer in Hollywood. That's the new. Go. That's the new soundbite we'll, we'll, we'll uh, I like that. promote with. Um, I like that. Let's roll with that. <laughs> speaking of Hollywood, speaking of the business in film, we always say show up and work hard. That's the way to do it. Show work hard. But in every other industry, they say show up and work smart. Don't work harder, work smarter. Why don't why don't filmmakers seem to embrace the work smarter, not harder attitude? Well, I, I think it depends on who you're working with. I mean, I've certainly worked with plenty of of, of filmmakers who who do the work smarter attitude. You know, um, unfortunately, you still see you know some of these absolutely tragic, devastating you know safety things um, and unsafe practices happening, mm-hmm. yep. um, which is absolutely you know, abhorrent. Um, you know, I think it depends on who you're working with, frankly. And I think that also goes back to what I was saying about, you know, build a strong team around you. I mean, you want to look, you want to have, I mean, this is something that George Griner taught me at the very beginning. You want to have attitude is everything, you know, that Mm. is, that is key. And if you have a good attitude and you are surrounding yourself with others who are like-minded with that good attitude, you're off to a great start. Um, if you have great attitudes, usually you're going to have people who are saying, okay, yeah, let's be safe about this. Let's, let's, you know, like my key grip is, is, um, is he's an amazing key grip, Jack Nagel. Um, and, and he's got my back at every turn. And for that matter, everyone on the cruise back at every turn, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, this, the, the key grip is, is, um, you know, one of their head responsibilities is to ensure that there's safety on set. Now, in the pandemic days, now that we're shooting, you know, we, we were off, we were all off for a while and then we learned how to come back. There is a health and safety officer on set, COVID manager. They're dealing with keeping all of us safe with PPE and testing and making sure that nobody gets COVID. But, you know, at the beginning, when we first came back, you know, it's like, that's all the focus and concentration was, you know, and if anything would start to go awry, Jack would, pull me aside and the producer aside and say, this is unsafe. We need to stop right now. We need to fix this. And then, you know, there would be an announcement. Like it's not just in the producer would step up and say, hey, guys, this isn't just about COVID. We're still have to be safe with everything else too. Right. You know, we have to be smart about it. You know, I think that people get working hard, confused with working fast, you mm-hmm. know, and, 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 and that's where, that's where people get into trouble. Look, we're not launching the rocket. We're not doing brain surgery here. So sure, there's a budget to be made and we need to make our day, you know, but 
if it's, if you're going to compromise safety or if you're going to compromise, you know, uh, anything, you know, for the sake of just going fast to get the shot, get it. You don't need the shot or get the shot tomorrow. You know, right. you, you, you absolutely, you know, we're, we're in the business of making entertainment and, and that's what, that's where the intelligence factor needs to come in. So I think, I think oftentimes people think, well, I just have to work faster. I'm going to lose my job. Okay. Well, look, I came up in, in cinematography and I started out in the very beginning as a camera intern. I worked my way all the way up in every position and I was a diligent camera assistant. I worked really hard and really fast, you know, to try and please whoever was up above me. But, but you have to be smart about it because when you're not smart about it, accidents happen. And whether it's slicing your finger or God forbid anything else that, that has gone on that we're all aware of, uh, it's not necessary. It's, it's just not necessary. So I don't know. I, the people who, I guess to sum that up, the people who don't embrace the the work smart, I tend to not gravitate to those people. You know, if I'm, if I'm a DP on a show and I find out that the, that the first AD who is I'm working very closely with to run the set and, or the UPM or any of those of us who are in the top supervisorial positions, if any of those people aren't being smart, I tend to just say, eh, I think I got a pass on this one, guys. It's just not worth it. You know, um, it's just not worth it. I mean, be, be, be smart, you know, so that you can come back tomorrow, you know, and, and, and no one is hurt. You know, no one, no one deserves, no one ever needs to get hurt ever. Very, very well put. A couple of technical questions for those listening that want to, let's say, go get a kit. Just just (laughs) go start shooting, right? They don't have the budget of a network TV, so they're not going to be shooting RE or they're not going to be shooting red per se, maybe, but because I don't want to steal that from you. Uh, Right. What do you shoot with? What are your favorite brands, software resources? Well, I'll tell you what, I have been working with, um, an amazingly talented, uh, filmmaker by the name of Rick Gomez. Uh, mm-hmm. he's a dear friend of mine and, uh, he and Kobe Tolan and Steve Zahn and I, uh, formed a company and, and we've, we've done Frank John Hughes is involved in that as well. We we've done like a bunch of independent projects together. You know, What's we did the name of the company? video macaroni art productions. They're the ones Perfect. that produced this uncandid portrait. Okay. And, um, and, um, you know, we have been pooling our resources together on all of these projects and we've been shooting them between, I think 10 and 20,000 a piece, mm-hmm. um, which isn't a lot of money. I mean, you know, that's, that's hardly any money at all. Um, but you know, we're doing it for the love of art and, and because we all love one another and love working together, mm-hmm. we've been shooting on DSLRs, you know, we have been shooting with, you know, I think we did this we did this music video, I think with a, I mean, this was a while ago, but we used the Canon Mark two, you know, and, and shot on that. And, and I think we, we did another job with a, with a Nikon and, and we hooked up the Gemini and, and we were able to shoot 4k with it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of like great ways, especially now these cameras are coming out with, with bigger sensors uh, did I hear something? Is that okay? Oh yeah, I heard it, but it's okay. Yeah, keep going. Okay, um, I'll, I'll back that up. And as Chris says, in five, four, three, two. Uh, nowadays, you know, they're they're coming out with great, you know, DSLRs and other cameras that have these bigger sensors 
you can shoot 4k so you, you know you, the compression may be more than what it would be on say a professional camera but you can get some really great imagery um on on fairly inexpensive you know cameras black magic is putting out cameras that are like four grand mm-hmm. you know that are that are amazing and 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 you know to me that's fine um where i always you know as a professional and when i say that i mean as a professional who wants to get the absolute <laughs> you know i want to get the best for whatever the project is even if there's no right. money on the project i'm still wanting to get the very best that i can for me it's all about the glass you know the mm-hmm. camera is one thing and the sensor is one thing along with the software that's in the camera but but i it, if you've got really crappy lenses then you know I don't know. Maybe that's the look you want for the show then too. And it works, but I I'm always going for better glass as much as I can. But I, but I find that, you know, there's, you know, Canon has a really good line and, and, uh, Fujifilm has a great line out there right now. Fuji. You know, there, wow, okay. yeah, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, consumer cameras out there that are working really well so that, you know, look, you have no reason now if you're a new filmmaker to not be making films. When I was coming up, you know, and I was in high school and I was using a VHS camcorder. I mean, I had to like borrow this thing and figure out all this stuff. I mean, you can use your iPhone and go out and, and shoot something tonight, cut it together on your phone, post it on YouTube or on your, on your Insta story. And, and you got people looking at it. That's incredible. Incredible. The resources that we have today. So I mean, honestly, you could, and people have done it. They have been shooting shorts and and films with their iPhone. You know, there's software that you can get for your iPhone so that you can get better quality recording um, with with different bells and whistles and parameters to adjust settings, aperture and color temperature and everything. Yep, And you can shoot with that. Filmic Pro. That's it. It's great. You know, I mean, there's no reason to not do that. You know, you absolutely should be out there creating, you know. There's a movie called The Comeback. It's on YouTube right now. It was shot for Apple. Their whole right. shot on iPhone series. You just won't believe this thing was shot only by, by yeah. phones alone. It's yeah. It's just such a such a masterful work for a short. I mean, film. and here's the here's the thing. You don't need the most expensive camera or the most expensive lens you know, to make your movie, you need what's going on up here and what's going on around you. You know, you can, if the story is good enough, you can shoot this thing on toilet paper. You know, you (laughs) just need to get out there. You just need to get out there and create, you know, because that, because that's the value. Go to any film festival or watch any film festival online. And you, you can watch hundreds of shorts out there that will make you cry because they're so good. And you'd be amazed that they had no money and what they shot them on, you know, because that's that is what the equipment you use isn't what's going to win you an award you know it's your creativity and your 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 motivation and your inspiration that is going to win you that award it's you know a, and get you known and get you recognized it's a wonderful point it's a wonderful point yeah um golly just go out there and and make it happen and i think the resources are out there but you need to be resourceful. So for the audience, Rick was, uh, when he said, you got to start with this, he was pointing for those who aren't watching on YouTube, he was pointing at his head. So start with your brain. Oh. And then this is a really far callback from the conversation earlier. For those uh, that are uninitiated, Bennigan's is, uh, used to be a national chain of restaurants that no longer <laughs> exists. 
And it's, uh, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a Chili's or a, like what would it be like today? Yeah, I don't it, know. It'd kind of be like a oh, ch- fun oh, family yeah. or like a yeah, like a fun uh, family place that's super well bright lit, <laughs> brightly lit with lots of fun neon, and it's just way too much. It felt like it was <laughs> it was it was it was slightly above. If you wanted to class it up a little bit, it was slightly above Bonanza and Ponderosa. So yeah, you go to those two. Exactly. Then, no, we're not going to Bonanza tonight. We're going to Bennigan's. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's like a, it was like a step up, uh, you know, in the, in the right direction. Um, I, I, I will say this just to add one more little bit there about the camera please. stuff is, is, is one thing that, that better cameras will get you is it will help you save time. Here's the thing. Oh, okay. I, I, I liken filmmaking to a triangle. There's three points. You need time, money, and experience. And if you've got, enough elements in all three of those points, you're going to be okay. Um, if you cut corners too much or you lose any of those three things, you're in trouble. You can have all the time in the world and all the money in the world, but if you don't have anyone on the crew who has any experience, you're going to have a really hard time making your movie. You can have all kinds of experience and all kinds of time, but if you have no money, you can have a really hard time making your movie, so on and so forth. You get the idea. So if you've got bottom-of-the-barrel equipment, you're going to end up, having a harder time making your days with whatever your schedule is. And, and, you know, I I think that if you can afford good equipment, you should try to put that money into it and not, not skimp on that because that will save you. Not only are you going to get better image quality, but it's going to save you time at the end of your day. It it really is. I mean, and, and time is everything, especially on an independent production because you have, nothing to make up for you don't have the time and the resources to do any reshoots or anything like that so yeah, i would say try, weigh it, right? yeah try not you know try not to skimp uh whenever possible know where to cut corners you know yeah. and know where not to that's a very hard that's a very hard lesson to learn and a lot of people think you know camera gear is so expensive or the lighting package or the props you know it's like okay well where did they get the props from? Maybe that's something where you can cut corners on a little bit and still get really interesting props. Or maybe we've we got to make a bunch of our own props, you know, instead of buying them from some warehouse, you know, we're going to make these. And that actually is going to make the film better because we've made them, you know. Yeah. But, you know, hard to shoot the movie without, without a camera or a lens, you know, hard to, hard to light the shot if you, have, if you don't have anything, you know. Go, so right. just a little, uh, a little word to the wise there. Well, I love it because the money savings might be on the time you save instead of on the actual 100%. equipment. You know, uh, you are a member of both IATSE and the DGA. Have you found mm-hmm. anything that one guild could learn from the other? Um, anything that one guild could learn from the other? Not really. Not that I, I mean, I mean, both are, yeah, both are very different. I mean, uh, you know, one is one is a technical union. The other one is is you know it, the, the, the you know IATSE covers well IATSE covers all the unions and all the locals, but specifically the International Cinematographers Guild covers DPs, operators, and all the all the different assistants um, and the DITs. The the DGA just covers you know production managers, directors, you know assistant directors. So yeah. their their focus is they have a much more focused guild than than I'd say what IATSE is. Um, I mean, both have, their, both have their pluses, both have their foibles and things that they're trying to, to deal with every year. Yeah. I don't, 
think I have a great answer for that question. Is there anything <laughs> anyone should know to navigate uh, well, those, those I will say this. went into them? Yeah, I will say this. I mean, you know, it's important um, to get into to get into either or both, you know, if you can. I, I mean, I was fortunate in that I, I always wanted to get into the DGA um, because I, I want to be able to direct and, and the, the circles that I'm traveling in is everything's DGA. So it makes it, a, it's one step closer to making it easier for a company to hire me if I, if, as opposed to me being non-guild. Right. Cause it's just a lot of extra paperwork and this, that, and the other. Um, and I got into the guild based off of a job that I was on where I was the, uh, a camera operator on an independent film. We were down in Alabama and, um, and the, the DP had to leave early. So I finished the show and then I had to do a bunch of, um, title sequence, second unit stuff. And when the title sequence, second unit stuff was coming up, the director had to leave the show. So the producer came to me and said, he had known me for a long time. He said, I've seen your shorts. I know you know what you're doing. I'm going to get you a contract and you're going to, cause this was a DGA film. He's like, I'm going to get you into the DGA. And so oh, that nice. was how I got my card. And then I had to go through, you know, meeting, you know, different directors to sign off. And, and, and it was great. Cause then I got to direct this whole, this whole second unit. Um, and, um, and it got me, you know, it got me one step closer. Now, the trick is though, particularly for those of you listening who are, who are independent filmmakers is once you join a guild, now everything you direct has to be guild. Mm. So there are ways around that. You can get experimental DGA contracts. That's how I do it. You know, when I go to Cleveland and do these shorts, they're DGA films, but I go through an experimental, you know, the DGA has a division where you can get a low budget contract to make the film DGA signatory so that you can direct because you, you, you can't, you can no longer direct anything without it being, you know, mm-hmm. run through the guild. Um, so that's all you just have to think about that. If you're living in say a city like New York and you're just doing constant Indies back to back, maybe the DGA isn't for you yet. What's wonderful about the DGA is, you know, the membership has a tremendous amount of benefits, health and welfare, pension, that sort of thing. Um, similarly in the, in the guild, in the IOTC, um, in the ICG local 600, um, that's where I get all my health benefits from, you know? Uh, and, and so not only do I get health benefits from them, but I get protection, you know, it is vitally crucial, I think, to try and get yourself into a position where you're working on union films. Here's why I spent the first half of my career doing non-union mm-hmm. when you're working non-union and, and, and I, I, I say this now, especially because we've had these accidents happen, you know, this, this tragedy last year with the DP, um, um, getting killed, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and it don't make no mistake. Accidents happen on union sets too. That was a union set. My point is I did my first half of my career working non-union when you're working non-union, there are no rules. You know, the rules are whatever the production company says they are. Right. So, you don't have turnaround rules, you know, and protections. So you could wrap one night at 1 a.m. and your call could be at 7 a.m. the next morning, right. you know, a without Friday a 10 day. hour or 11 hour. Yeah. Guarantee. Well, not even Friday, midweek, you know, and, and then you've got to come back in without having adequate sleep or distance, you know, driving distance protection, mm-hmm. you know, or meal penalties. And you go so long without meals. I mean, there are so many things that the union protects you from, you know, and let's face it everyone who's doing a union show, the producers, you know, are, are, are 
they have their job. The union will protect them, make sure that they're doing it in accordance with all the, with all the laws. Um, on a non-union show, you just don't have that protection. Not only that, you have to negotiate your own rate. For years as an AC, I had to negotiate my own deal. Whereas in a guild, it's, there's a rate card depending on the type of production you're working, and that's what's going to stipulate how much money you make. And then those, those hours are going to count towards you. Every hour you work on a show goes into a, a bank of um, health and welfare so that you have your health insurance. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would strongly urge you to, you know, um, if you're coming up um, as, as uh, you know, a cinematographer in the camera department, you know, get your experience. But if you can get into the, you know, track your hours and get on a union shoot, do it and get into the guild. Um, now there, again, you can work independent productions that are non-union at your own risk. But if they union, if they, if they pick it, if the union finds out and they try to turn the show, you can't cross that line. You know, that's when you have to step. So you can do that. Uh, it's not encouraged. And, you know, again, I don't know. I just, I, I got a bad taste in my mouth from the non-union stuff because I worked so much of it. And, and there were so many times when I know things weren't safe and, you know, I was lucky to be safe because I had a, you know, brain on top of my shoulders, but you know, I don't know. It's just, it can be dicey. You have to be very careful. You know, this is a marathon. This business is a marathon, not a sprint, you know, And and you need to, you know, I've been doing this 30 years. You really need to, you really need to look out for yourself. Yeah. You need to make sure you're around to, to, to do the job for sure. That's right. You have a friend who, right. whose brother was, uh, you know, working crew and, and just, I think he had a, just a terrible accident where he, where he was killed and mm-hmm. no one, you know, no one suspected that, that what he was working on was unsafe. And, um, uh, mm-hmm. man, it turned out to be just, uh, you know, absolutely life, life changing. Oh, uh, we are going to enter a little bit of a speed round of questions. Nice. <laughs> Great. And I'll start with what are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and who did they come from? Uh, the first bit is attitude is everything that came from George Griner, the DP that I referenced earlier in the conversation. Um, and he's right. You have a good attitude. People want to be around you. You know, you don't want to be the person complaining, you know, you get to do, what you're doing. You don't have to do what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a privilege to be there. So your attitude is everything. You're going to get a better product out of yourself and around the people and with the people around you, if you have a good attitude, you know, and, and that, that came from George. Um, the second one, uh, you know, I was doing a short film. I had met, um, I had met, uh, Ossie Davis when I was a film student. And then I got to work with him as a camera assistant on a show after I had been in the business. So, I'd gotten to know him over the last few years and uh, I was getting ready to do this short film and he offered to act in it for us. And I, I couldn't believe it. My friends and I got together and we, we pulled our resources and we flew him out and we, and we had a day with him. And before we rolled the first shot, I, I said to him, I said, Ossie, not for nothing, but why are you helping me? I, I don't understand. You've been doing this. You're like 80 years old. Like, you're Ossie Davis, you know, like, why would you do something like this? And he said to me very gently, he said, young man, he said, there are those many, many people who helped me when I was coming up and they're long gone. And uh, he said, this is how you give back. He said, you, you, you help those who are coming along and you look out for them, you train, you teach, you help people be, you know, 
rise to the best of their ability um, because the people who, who helped you aren't, aren't going to be there. That's how you pay them back. That's how you say thank you. And I have never forgotten that. And I do that every single chance I get um, at every opportunity. And I, and I look above and say, all right, Aussie, there you go. There's another one added to the list, you know, because that to me is invaluable, you know? Um, Boom. So I would say those, those two. What are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making today? I think the biggest creative and business mistakes that I've seen have been um, people putting on airs, mm-hmm. you know, just be yourself. You know, my wife, you know, <laughs> God bless her. She says, just be you. And she's right. Yeah. You know, humility goes a lot further in, in this business, you know, and it goes a lot further with collaboration than pretending, you know, it all. Because when I see this happening, it can become very costly. People who don't listen or take direction, you know, they, they can run a production in, into a direction where you end up losing time and wasting money. You know, you need to, you need to be yourself. If you don't know something, turn to someone and say, look, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I need, I need help with this, or I'm fumbling with this and I, you know, this isn't working out, you know? So, you know, it, it can be so costly, whether we're talking about dropping a lens, you know, and costing the production all kinds of money with, with L and D, or you're talking about putting someone in the wrong wardrobe, or you're talking about screwing up the directions, or you're talking about plugging in, you know, the wrong amperage and causing a fire. I mean, who knows, you know, it it just, you just don't ever want to put on airs. No one expects you to be perfect at everything. And if they do to hell with them, because we're, we're all learning where I'm learning every single day, you know, and, and I've been at this a long time. So that I think is the biggest thing. I mean, here's the thing you want to express your ideas and you want to express them with confidence, but you don't want to shut down when they're rejected. You know, this is a very difficult business and it's, it's niche, you know, uh, it's niche. It's niche. I like niche. Um, niche. It's niche. It's very niche. It's very French. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> you have to find your place to fit in. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, people like to have you around because of your ideas and, and there is no right or wrong. You know, it's just your idea, you know, and they're either going to accept your idea or they're not going to accept your idea. And if they don't, who cares? You're going to have another idea after that. And you can't let that stop you just because someone didn't like your idea. The trick is, you know, be yourself, you know, don't, don't, don't put on airs. Don't be who you think you are. You know, don't act, like you've already been doing this forever. And I am a big Hollywood director of photography. <laughs> I am a big director. Nobody gives a shit, you know, yeah. we're all here yeah. to make a movie together. So That's be right. you, because I'm right. going to respect you a hundred times more for things that you don't know versus the things that you do know. I honestly. Let's walk into this scenario, Rick. <laughs> Just follow me here. Uh, Cause you are a guy who loves to pay it forward. Let's say, a young aspiring DP just did the mistake you just described. They told some client that they are a brilliant director of photography. They can definitely do the project that the client is looking to be done. That was a complete lie. They've come to you, Rick, and said, I have one month to learn how to be a DP. What are the first three things you teach them? Hmm. Wow. That's tough. Um, because now you really sold yourself up the river. I would say, (laughs) (laughs) I would say first off, get yourself a gaffer and a key grip 
who, who are way better than you Mm -hmm. and, and check your ego at that door, get a left eye and a right eye because they're going to save your butt. They, Mm -hmm. uh, they let them light it, let them light it, you know, because, because, you know, they always have good ideas. You know, if they're worth their weight in salt, which most of them are, they, they mm-hmm. always have good ideas because they've worked for a lot of different DPs. If they're experienced, they've worked for a lot of different DPs. You put a hundred of us in a room, we're going to do it a hundred different ways and they're all going to be right. Mm-hmm. You know, and these ga- and gaffers and DP and gaffers and key grips, they, they know this, they've been working with these people. So um, hire yourself a strong team that way. That's the first thing I would say. All Secondly, right. I would say, Less is more. Be simple. Don't go crazy. You don't need to do too much. You know, you need to sell the client what the client needs and try to think of it in simplistic ways, simple lighting, simple camera moves. And if they are asking you for something big, like, well, can we do all this green screen stuff? Let me get back to you on that. Now go find yourself somebody who knows VizFX, and they're going to be able to help you figure that out. Like, okay, yeah, you, you have somebody who's going to like this. Well, here's what you need. We're going to give you a screen or we're going to give you this out of the other. And then, you know, this is what you're going to need to do so that we can pull it in a post and edit it. This is what you're going to need, you know, for the background of it. Find an expert who knows green screen. Don't pretend you know how to do it. You know, again, it's like what I was saying before. If you put on airs that you don't know, and now you've done this to get this job, you really, your, your biggest strength is going to be in those who you hire around you. And then I would say the last thing is listen to the client. They're the ones paying the bill. Mm-hmm. So it's not your movie. You can't dig your heels in and, and take this as your big moment. This is your commercial. Say it's a commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be the thing that's going to get me my next job. And I'm going to direct the hell out of this thing. I'm going to be Spielberg and I'm going to, or I'm going to shoot the hell out of this thing and be Janusz. And, and this is going to be amazing. No, wrong. It's their movie. They're paying the bills. Listen to them, what they want. Check with them. Always communicate. Is this kind of what you guys are thinking? Do you like this? Do you want to be tighter? Do you want to be looser? You know, this is a little bit different from what we talked about when we were setting up all the storyboards and pre-production. Um, and I'm a little bit into a, and I'm backed into a corner here because of the time of day and, and we've got this big window that we're fighting. If I offer you this option, would this work for you? You know, be a team member to them and listen to them. If they say yes or no, go with that. Don't, don't fight too hard. You got to pick your battles. Love it. And for those listening at home, number one is find an experienced gaffer and key grip. Number two is less is more. And number three, listen to the client, be a team member, communicate. That's beautiful. And Rick, this conversation has been beautiful. I've learned so much. Uh, not to mention the uh, Rick Page triangle for ultimate filmmaking success, time, <laughs> experience, money. Uh, and please feel free to trademark that because I think that's pretty valuable on its own. Uh, on its own, uh, Tell everybody where they can find you on social media, uh, the internet, uh, maybe even see some of your work. Well, you can find me. I, I am on both Twitter and Instagram, though. I don't tweet as much. Um, I kind of use that more for just reading. I really like to do behind the scenes on Instagram. You can find me there at Rick page underscore R I C K P A G E underscore. Um, lots of great BTS content on there. And, um, that's, that's sort of my jam. I, I really, uh, enjoy, you know, putting our shows out there and, and, and 
connecting with people that way. Online, uh, my website is Rick Page DP. Same spelling, R-I-C-P-A. All right, I can't even spell my own name. My, <laughs> my website is rickpagedp.com, R-I-C-K-P-A-G-E-D-P.com. And I've got my reels on there. I'm repped by Zero Gravity Management and Alex Franklin. And, um, and uh, yeah, you can see my work on there and my projects. I'm, I'm in the middle of um, helping um, Rick Gomez and our, and our guys with Macaroni Art Productions. We're getting ready to do a, a feature called um, Hot Fruit with um with steve and uh, and judy greer and ann dowd it's gonna be a lot of fun that's over at macaroni art productions and um dot com and uh yeah i mean that's where that's where i'm at i can't wait to see that i love that entire cast and i thought i'd end on this uh, it's just you know it comes through in your voice and your personality even through your eyes just your gratitude for getting to do what you do every day and i was curious uh, if you don't mind me asking, I know you had a, a pretty big health scare, heart surgery. Uh, how did that change your outlook on your career and your life? Uh, Chris, how do you know? <laughs> it's like I'm on Howard Stern. How do you know all this information? <laughs> this is fantastic. You've done all your homework. Wow. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I um, in, in, let's see, in 2014, in fact, I was shooting the, the, the web series made right here, which part of it we did in Nashville. Um, and we were back in South Carolina and I got a, I got a phone call from my doctor saying, you know, we had detected a heart murmur and, um, you know, you need to get back to Salt Lake. We need to discuss this. And so I, I found out that I had this, this moderate to severe heart murmur from the cardiologist. And, uh, he said, you know, yeah, your heart could give out. Um, we're going to need to keep an eye on this because I wasn't feeling any symptoms. Mm. And I said, well, shouldn't we just do surgery now? You know? And he goes, no, he goes, you could get hit by a bus in a week. I said, well, nice bedside manner, doc. I'm like what the <laughs> heck? And, uh, and he said, the point being, he's like, we're going to wait, we're going to monitor it with, 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 uh, echoes and, and, you know, watch what you eat, exercise, watch for symptoms. And we're just going to keep an eye on you. So for three years, I hit the gym hard and, um, and I, I got really healthy and, um, and then in 2017, we were just getting back to work on Brooklyn nine, nine and, um, and, uh, the cardiologist called me in and they said, well, your last echo shows that your left ventricle doubled in size, your ejection fraction is, has, has, um, increased. We need to get you into surgery because you're going to go into congestive heart failure. So being the consummate filmmaker that I am, I was like, well, I've been off work for a few months. I just got back to LA. I'm getting ready to do this show again. we got another season. I can't go for heart surgery now. I uh, lose my job. I, how about we do this in, in March when I'm done with the show? He said, no, we need to do this now. I said, well, how about Christmas? Because I'll be off for a couple of weeks. Could we fit it in there? He said, we're talking about heart surgery. No, you don't just fit it in there. This isn't like takeout. Um, you could be gone by Christmas. And that was when it hit me. I thought, wow, they're talking about real life and death here. So, um, that experience changed my life. You know, frankly, um, I, I went in, it was a hundred percent successful. They repaired the valve instead of having to replace it, which means I don't have to go in in 10 years again and, and do anything. It wasn't like a pig valve or a synthetic valve. Um, but they, they, they did more, they did more operating than I expected. I thought it was going to be laparoscopic the way it was described to me, but they actually went through my side and cracked open my ribs and, 
and, and split me open. And, and I was on a, on a hard lung machine for, for six hours, which is really trippy to think about that, that I was, my heart wasn't beating and my lungs weren't breathing for that long, that it was a machine doing the work. And you go through that experience. Um, and, and what I tell people is, you know, you, you sort of resign yourself. There was a moment of no return for me. Um, a moment of, of surrender, actually, you know, um, as I was getting ready to go into the operating room and after I had said goodbye to my wife and, and had, had, you know, talked everything over with the anesthesiologist and the doctor and getting ready to go in, I thought, okay, at that moment, that's, there's nothing more I can do mm-hmm. there. There isn't another word to say. There isn't another dream to have. There isn't another hope. I, it's now it's all up, all up to God. It's, it's in God's hands at this point. And either I'm going to make it through this or there's going to be a fluke accident and I'm not. And you just sort of resign yourself. And it was a strange, strange moment of, of peace and calm. And, um, you know, it, it went very quickly. You know, I, the six hours to me was a matter of minutes and, and I was very groggy waking up and I was in the ICU for, I think two days and then in the hospital for three. And then I was home recovering for like five weeks and it, it changed my life because I, I had always been like this humble and grateful and appreciative of things, but not as much. I think that, that the first time I was able to, to walk outside with our dog who was going through chemo at the time. Um, and, and then we had lost him that February, but to go outside and walk him and feel the sun and smell the freshly cut grass in the lawn and, and hear a plane and see a bird it was like, it was so different than what it was before and eating and drinking. It was like, I don't know, it just, everything tasted better and everything just seemed that much better. And it it just made me think to myself, you know, look, what we do for a living, you know, you try to light the actress as best as you can light her. You try to light the set, you try to get the director, all the coverage that they need so that the editors have everything to construct the story you try to get the best camera move, you nail the focus, you're doing everything, but eventually you just have to say good is good enough because we're never going to be getting it all perfect. And, and, um, and I think that that experience helped teach me that, you know, it just made me, it just made me realize there's so much more to life. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it brought us all, it brought us all closer, you know, um, my wife and, and my dog and I, and, and, and I don't know, it just, I really, I really appreciate having gone through it. It was a good, positive experience for me. And I feel very healthy. I, I, you know, I can swim a mile now and, and I can, I can run and I can, I can, I'm perfectly healthy. And, uh, I, I feel very, very fortunate. That's amazing, man. And it, just that, um, that whole story yeah, hit me right in the heart. So, so I really appreciate you sharing it. Yeah. It's, uh, you're welcome. I, I'm, I'm happy to share it. You know, I tell, I tell people too, I'm a, anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm a consummate, you probably have this in your notes since you have so much research <laughs> that I'm a consummate worrier. I love to worry about everything. Um, you know, when this pandemic hit, forget about it. I was, uh, I, it was, it was horrible. My friends were, were going crazy with how much I was worrying about surfaces and germs, but, <laughs> um, uh, the heart surgery taught me about faith and, and likening that to worrying. You know, we all, we all sort of face ourselves with how am I going to do this thing next week? 
or mm-hmm. next month or next year? How am I going to get this job? How am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to achieve this goal? How am I going to, how, 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 I don't know how, you know, and we're so fearful. And, you know, I was given the opportunity where I was told I had a heart murmur and we were going to wait and we waited three years and I worked out and I ate healthy and I, and I just tried to not think about it. And I never really did think about it. Now, looking back right before I had the surgery, I was short of breath and I was feeling fatigued. I didn't think I had symptoms, but I was, I just thought I was tired from work, Mm. but I had an opportunity to strengthen my body and my mind ahead of time for this surgery. And I was working for some incredible people at Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the producers who said, absolutely go and get your heart surgery and your job will be here when you come back. You don't even need to worry about that. And if there's anything we can do, tell us now you don't necessarily, you don't I don't think you hear that often in, in the film business. I just, you know, gone today, here tomorrow, you know, we gotta, we gotta have somebody else come in and take over. But they were so nice and generous and the whole crew was incredibly supportive. I was getting all kinds of, you know, the camera department sent me food and, and flowers. And I mean, everybody was just so supportive throughout the whole thing. And it gave me an incredible amount of time with my dog who ended up dying that February. This was mm-hmm. in, this was at the end of, so this was throughout September and part of October and we lost him in February, but I got a lot of time with him while he was still healthy before yeah. he died from lymphoma. And I got to be home with my wife and I got to do all these great things, you know, recovering, reading and talking, connecting with friends over FaceTime. And, and, and it made me realize, you know what? everything was laid out perfectly ahead of time, you know? And if I had just had the faith ahead of time to know that it was all going to work, I mean, looking back, I go, well, yeah, see, it all worked out. It all lined up perfectly. That was the plan. And it all worked out perfectly. And I had a successful surgery and it, it all worked out great. Well, if we just apply that moving forward, we don't know what's going on next week, next month or next year. But if we just have faith to know that whatever is going on right now, it is going to work out the way it's supposed to work out for you. That's sort of what I live by. That is, I miss all my worrying and, and, and my little things, uh, my little OCD things. Mm-hmm. That is my main thing. That's what drives me every day is to just have that faith that it is going to work out for the best one way or the other. You're going to meet the right people. You're going to have the right conversations. You're going to have the right experiences. You're going to fall down. You're going to get cinders in your knees. You're going to pick them out of there and get back up and keep walking and run again. You're going to do it because you have to. That's how you learn. You learn by you learn by falling down and getting back up again. You have to. Amazing. So. Amazing. Rick, this has been such a tremendous time. Learned so much. Yeah. And uh, I thought at the beginning of this that this conversation was going to make my day and, and you did not let me down. Um, oh, please, thank you. Uh, if you're listening to this, go check out Rick's work. Go check out everything he's doing with Macaroni Art. And uh, check out him on social. Follow him. Uh, it's a journey worth following. And, and Rick, I hope me and you stay in touch. And uh, we will. We as will. I always For say, sure. we've got a... go ahead. New friends. We're new, new friends. friends. New friends, new friends for sure. That's new it. friends for life. Uh, so so many things yep. in common. And as I always say, I'm just an email, phone call, or text away if you ever need anything. And uh, likewise, if I find you, uh, drinks on me. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, I'll right, you brother. up on that. <laughs> All right. All right, brother. Take care. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Be good. Bye. Peace. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts 
projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.